I'm very excited about this upcoming uh, Mercy Ministry Wednesday night small group. I was part of the Wednesday night group earlier this year, and it was Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. I was excited when we started that particular time. Uh, somewhere in the middle of that, Carolyn and I had to take a very hard look at, at our finances. Uh, we had to take a look at our debt situation. And, and you know, after a while, it's, it's, it's a smidge exhausting having to detail, you know, and start thinking, okay, we've got to start saving for retirement. What have we done wrong here? And, and unfortunately, in our case, I've done considerable a uh, considerable number of things wrong in the process of preparing for our financial future. I, I really dislike even uh, talking about money in, in our personal context because it always inevitably leads to me having to restrain myself in some way. And, you know, it's uh, our big sieve, the leak in our finances are me going out to eat, if you couldn't tell. And so this is really sort of uh, common. But I, I was thinking how irritating it would be if I had to do this every day. Uh, I thought to myself, what if you had somebody who in your family was uh, uh, one who would continuously recount the potential for financial disaster? Uh, Carolyn and I, when we were a young couple, went uh, on the advice of a friend to visit with an older couple who were telling us about how they used to save money. And we left that meeting thinking there's no way in the world we're going to be like that. He had counted every penny. And, and you know, if they spent like two rolls of toilet paper, they would budget for that. And, and it was that kind of control. And I thought I couldn't survive in that kind of world. Uh, imagine that somebody was in your home continuously reminding you of what you owed and how far you were from saving for your first home or the real possibility of financial hardship that's coming your way. And again and again and again, all they'd want to do is talk about this. That would drive me crazy. But what if this same person, by some chance, let's say it was me, came to you and said, hey, I got um, yesterday notice that my Uncle Mike passed away, which is unfortunate, but he had no children and he liked me better than everybody else in our family, so I've inherited $5 million from him. And Carolyn and I, if this were to happen, God led us, and we were supposed to pay off the debt of everybody who's in our church. But I said, you know what? You bring the receipts to me. Whatever your credit card, whatever your student loan debts are, we're going to sit down. We're going to pay them off today. I'll write you a check. But before we do that, let me talk with you about what that debt's all about and how it got started. See, in that context, knowing that you had financial relief like right there, it wouldn't be nearly as painful as the kind of despair you have when you're looking at it and going, how are we ever going to dig out from under this pile? In this vein, I would like us to approach a subject today. The subject is the notion of God's judgment. And that is an unappealing subject for most people to discuss it is a dilemma that face many as they talk about a biblical teaching, something that is contained in the oldest of Christian creeds, that Jesus will, in fact, come one day to judge the living and the dead. Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, Christians across the globe for two millennium have said, we believe in one God, and then we believe in Jesus who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. This judgment day will come, but it's not very culturally cool or common to talk about things like 
sinners or judgment. So we've often, maybe the church, individuals within the church have avoided talking about it. And what that would be is kind of sort of akin to a couple that is ignoring that the reality that the debt collector is coming and they're ignoring that reality, and so they just keep ringing up credit on the credit card. They keep taking out lines of credit and borrowing and buying new cars. And, and so it's almost like we, we want to kind of sort of ignore it. We want to kind of pretend it's not going to happen or it's not coming soon. Our pride at times doesn't want to acknowledge that we have a moral debt to God. Perhaps it is our lack of understanding that this debt has been paid that has made us who would call ourselves Christians unwilling to actually look at it and, and talk about it. Well, today in our continuing series in the bold letters from the Blood Brothers, this section of Jude is Jude's pronouncement of a certain judgment that will come on people who had infiltrated this particular church. And Jude speaks in real vivid terms about the kind of judgment, and he references an, an extra-canonical book for, for Protestant Christians. Uh, it's called the Apocrypha. It was a, a, a series of prophecies and stories that Jewish legend held to be true. Well, one way or another, because, Enoch, uh, because Jude mentions Enoch, it is now a part of our scripture we would tend to believe that it was, at the very least, a real thought in the people of the Jewish nation at that time. And look at what he says. Read with me. He says, It was also about these, speaking of sinful people, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you're getting the idea that, that our buddy is a little sensitive about ungodliness. And he mentions it a few times. This is, this is Enoch's issue. These are ungodly people and God will judge that. Now some say the prophecy of Enoch was just a tradition. Others say it was a part of the Old Testament canon. What we know for certain is that it was a long-standing prophecy that was part of the Jewish community, and hence Jude you know, references it real casually as if everybody sort of knew about it. We also know that the concept of judgment is not inconsistent with either the Old or the New Testament, and certainly our ecumenical creeds. We we have to face the reality, biblically speaking, that there is going to come a day when judgment of the world is going to take place. So it begs the question, at least for me, why is it that so many in the 21st century Western Christian culture find the concept of God's judgment so repugnant? Why is it that it creates this anytime we read anything that smacks of God justly judging sinful people that makes our guts tighten up. And so to that end today, what I'd like to do is take a look at two parts of this discussion, two places where I think we need to think deeply 
about why it's so difficult for us to either hear about judgment or to think about judgment or, or even why it's difficult for us to talk about it. And the first thought I have for you today is this. We are repelled by God's judgment because it threatens all people. We're repelled by it. Look what, again, in verses 14 and 15, Jude says, The Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all of their deeds of ungodliness. And then Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's important to distinguish between the two problems with our being. One is that we are sinners. The other is we, that we do sinful things. Jude refers to the ungodly and their ungodly deeds. It has been said we don't sin. Uh, we, we, I'm sorry, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We, we do not do ungodly things. We are ungodly people, and that is what makes us do ungodly things. There's something corrupt and broken in our very nature. And this is what makes all of us sort of frightened when we start talking about Judgment Day. The notion of God's judgment scares us. It scares people for ourselves. It scares Christians that, you know, if they start thinking about loved ones who've never believed in Jesus. So in these two senses, the subject of God's judgment can repel us. In one way, we don't like hearing descriptions of God's wrath because perhaps you are not comfortable being God's child. You are not secure in that. So any mention of it makes you think, maybe they're talking about me. I know growing up in a Catholic church, that was a challenge, and it's probably true for any of you who were raised in any other denomination. If you don't know that you're okay with God like right now, then you're always going to think every time the subject of judgment comes up that somehow or another this is something you want to avoid talking about. When in reality, if you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about it at all. There is a moment in your Christian experience when you're going to have to know that you know that you know that you are safe and secure in Christ. And that could be one of the reasons why it's really difficult for you to hear people describe this day or talk about this day. There's a second sense when we find judgment objectionable, and that's because we want others to know God, and we fear that if we talk about it in our presentation of this whole notion of judgment, we might offend them, that the potentially objectionable components of our faith are really something to be avoided in the discussion of things. But I would say there's an important thing that we must remember when we talk about salvation or the grace of God. And that is there is a proportional sense of joy that comes with how much you have been forgiven. If you have a gargantuan debt, financially speaking, and somebody comes along and writes you a big check, you are amazingly grateful to them for what they've done for you. If I have to borrow five bucks from Brooks for lunch, I'm not going to like give my life to him for that. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, thank you. I'll say, you know, I'll get you your five bucks tomorrow. But if somebody pays a debt that I had no conceivable way of paying on my own, the gratitude level goes through the roof. So there is something that we need to be able to communicate to culture, to each other, to ourselves about judgment and about what is justly due God that would help us to 
super enjoy what Jesus has done for us. Jonathan Edwards was the pastor who spearheaded America's first great revival. It's called the Great Awakening. It took place in pre-colonial United States. Uh, And one of his most famous sermons in this collection, this is volume two of uh, Jonathan Edwards's uh, works. I got to tell you, I had to buy the seminary. I was surprised, but the freakish thing about it was the text in this thing. I don't know how anybody would actually read this. So much material in this book. It's 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 freakishly frightening. Uh, the sermon, though, that gets the most attention of all of Jonathan Edwards' sermons is one entitled "Sinners." In the hands of an angry God. Now, before I read a passage from this, which I happen to bring this morning, I really want to challenge you to to think of somebody, the most evil person that you've known of, heard of in your lifetime. I would like you to maybe in your head uh, picture somebody who has kidnapped children. All right, that is like. Or a a warlord, somebody in a country who's kidnapping children and forcing them to fight battles for money. You know, somebody who enslaves people. Think of the person that you think is the cruelest, most manifest representation of evil you can think of. So imagine before I read this snippet from his sermon that that's who is sitting in front of Jonathan Edwards. And see if it doesn't help you actually sort of kind of enjoy it. Now, I mean that in the sickest of ways. I'm saying you and I love it when people we think are awful get justice. We're not particularly fond of it when it happens to ourselves. So think of the person who you find just yourself, just repugnant. And then imagine Jonathan Edwards says this, quote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable more in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep and there is no other reason to be given why you have not been dropped into hell since you arose this morning but that God's hand has held you up. Now to a person who you and I would say, this person is terrible. They, They executed three families in Ohio last week. This kind of person. That kind of person When we say God is graciously hoping that they'll turn from their sin or else he's, you know, there's no other reason to explain why he wouldn't just drop them into judgment. See, everybody can stomach that. When Edwards is reading that to Hitler or a Somali warlord or to a man who kidnaps and tortures innocent children, this doesn't sound so bad. It's only objectionable when we imagine he's directing it towards us. 
Edwards is the guy that shows up at your house with your debt situation meticulously calculating, calculated, letting you know that ruinous financial disaster is potentially headed your way, and the only way you are going to be able to hear all that without despair, the only way this kind of rhetoric isn't going to repel you is to either A, assume there is a solution to the problem of your sin debt, a bailout of sorts, a financial rescuer who's ready to stroke the check to take care of your financial needs, or ignore the soon coming day of debt reckoning. Just ignore it. And this second response usually takes on tones of rejection of the notion of judgment in favor of God's love, as if the two are irreconcilable or if they're mutually exclusive. Some would say, Jesus never said anything that even sounds like this. And I would say, Jesus' rhetoric was potentially more nuanced than Jonathan Edwards. I'll give you that. Puritans weren't this most seeker-sensitive bunch on America's soil. Um, I'll give you that. Uh, I would not whip out this quote in talking to my non-churched friend that's at Starbucks. Hey, before we talk, read this thing from Jonathan Edwards. That would not be my first move. But Jesus did say this in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. So Jesus is saying, we stand, every human being, every one of us, all of us, are threatened by the notion of judgment. And if we reject his offer to pay that judgment, to pay that debt, then we stand condemned. He doesn't have to do any other condemning of us. We're already judged guilty. Jesus is saying, belief in the name of the Son of God is what would free us, free us from any fear of judgment. Carolyn and I were able to buy our dream home in the summer of 2012. It really is. I mean, first of all, buying a home in California is itself a dream for many of us. I mean, man, no wonder half of you will move to Texas in the next 10 years. It's like, you know, wow, a house for $30,000. Who would have thunk? You know what I mean? Now, granted, there's a lot of brush patch out there that you may be bored sitting around. But the cheap, cheap housing. Got to love that. We got to buy a house that we love because the family that lived in it before us uh, failed to predict the economic turn that came in 2008. You see, they were part of that, uh, that, that wave of people that thought the equity in their home was going to continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. And so buying a home for X number of dollars and then two years later it's worth a bunch more and then you start borrowing against the equity in your house. You start, like, having fun because you had this house that now you think is worth twice as much as what you bought it for, but you don't see what's coming, which is a complete collapse of the housing market. And so is the case with the people who owned our house. Is the case with many people who owned homes here in Southern California. They got overextended. The bank patiently waited 
years, as a matter of fact. They didn't receive payment for many, many moons. And then we're getting ready to foreclose when we came along and were able to do a short sale, which saved their credit, uh, the family's credit, from being completely destroyed. And the bank approved us buying it at a, a severe discount, which worked out well for us and in turn worked out well for the person who'd gotten their head you know, way under the water of their financial problems. You see, the home's lenders were patient, but they eventually came calling. And in the same way, we can recognize without being afraid of it ourselves that there is going to come a time when the patient God of all creation is going to exact judgment. And he's waiting for all those who would ever believe. If sin wasn't abhorrent to God, if judgment wasn't coming, you have to ask yourself, why do I think Jesus was allowed to be crucified? If our sin wasn't that disgusting to God, why go to all that trouble to exact some kind of punishment? Why did Jesus have to be substituted? Because our sin was that offensive. That judgment is coming. It is repelling, repellent to people, to us even, because it threatens. It threatens loved ones who have never turned to Jesus. It threatens us if we're insecure about our salvation. It can threaten us. And it may be repellent, but here's the other thing we need to understand. God has offered a solution. He calls it justification. He calls it redemption. He calls it rescuing us from our financial and morally uh, incredibly indebtedness to him, incredible moral indebtedness to him. He, he's going to rescue us from that. But we naturally will even resist that too. And while I would say that we are repelled by God's judgment because it threatens all people. The second thought I have for you today is this. We're resistant to God's justification because it threatens all pride. When people turn away from what Jesus has offered to them, it's generally speaking because of our pride. A couple of things we all can learn about pride from this passage, Jude 1.16. This is the description Jude gives after he quotes the prophecy from Enoch. This is how he describes the, the people that were stirring up trouble in his church. They are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Think about what Jude is condemning here and ask yourself whether or not you are guilty of any of that. I don't see witchcraft on this. I don't see like child sacrifice on this. I don't see anything that you and I would go evil. But I can tell you, in the last week, I've grumbled. I've been malcontented about things. I have followed my own sinful desires. I don't know how much loudmouth boasting I've done. I'm sort of loudmouth, but boasting is a sort of kind of, I would imagine for all of us in one way or another, something we're even just unconsciously doing, trying to position ourselves to make ourselves look better compared to others. I don't know how often, but we often show favoritism if we think we're going to gain an advantage, this is something we all could say we were guilty of. And this is what Romans 3, 23 through 25 actually confirms. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
you and I, human beings, if we are genuine believers, we have to recognize that we never have an occasion to be self-righteous. All we are, all we have, all we will become is a gift of his grace. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 3. He's saying, that, and, and he echoed it in his letter to the Ephesians. This is, by, this is a gift. You do not get to earn this. And it's because you are the one who is going to have to say, thank you for paying off my debt. I'm going to live my life to love you because you've been so gracious to me. And this is the way it's intended to be, that you and I would never be proud. There is no pride allowed. God opposes the proud, the scriptures say, in both Old and New Testament and gives grace to the humble. Now, in my judgment, and truthfully, I don't think you'd have to be much of a scholar of the scriptures to recognize that scripture testifies to this too. The single biggest impulse to reject Christianity and in particular, Orthodox Christianity that talks in the Nicene Creed about Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead is that people don't think they deserve God's judgment. People don't want to believe that we deserve God's judgment. Believers and non-believers in the West have in many ways been indoctrinated by our culture. And understand, I think God loves you individually. He created you uniquely and he clearly, through Christ, has demonstrated that he's pursuing you if you're his child. He loves you intensely. But in our generation of parenting, uh, mine and the generation that is following me, we have so overcompensated for our desire to protect our kids that we've spent most of our life telling them they're special and not remembering to tell them that they're not the only special person and we're seeing this at, in, our, in our culture manifest itself in colleges and Christian colleges. One of the things we will see in Christian colleges is parents coming to the defense of their children. So, you know, their kid will do something and then we'll get a phone call and they'll go, my child has, would never have done that. Can you imagine? My parents, they got these calls too. I mean, you know, the, the modern-day parents like little Chucky would never make a lie. He would never lie. My parents were like, oh, yeah, he would. We know little Chucky. We've seen little Chucky do his thing. You know, in my generation, they spanked at school. Now I realize that's a hot-button subject, but I'll just tell you, in my generation, if I got spanked, I'd come home, I'd get spanked again. I mean, there was like my parents were always on the side of my teachers. We've got a generation now, though, where little Chucky can do no wrong. I know you caught Chucky with the bong, but that doesn't mean he wasn't growing plants in it. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, seriously. And, and it's that kind of foolishness that says that I can do no wrong. I will never do anything wrong. David Brooks of the New York Times says this. I think there is some allergy our culture has toward moral judgment of any kind, he reflects. This is a big relativistic strain through our society that if it feels good for you, then who am I to judge? I think that is fundamentally wrong, and I'd rather take the hits for being a moralizer than to have a public square where there's no moral thought going on. You see, people love to quote the Bible, even if they don't know where the Bible is in their house or they don't own one and they wouldn't even be able to tell you where this particular verse is, but you know it. The minute you bring up anything as right or wrong categorically, people will say, judge not, lest you be judged. 
you know? And it's like, okay, where's that in the scriptures? I don't know. Do you know the context? No, not really. They don't have any understanding of it. Most don't even stop to think about what they're saying. While it is true that there is never any human justification for moral judgment, clearly the person that quotes that verse thinks there's a divine right for God to do so. Or else the one who is judging couldn't be threatened with the mysterious Bible verse that says, lest you be judged. The person who whips out that verse clearly thinks there is at least some basis for God to do so. He clearly hates judgmental people and will judge them. The ultimate antidote, friends, for our repulsion to rhetoric about God's moral judgment, whether it's the Willow Creek soft kind or it's the Jonathan Edwards fiery kind, I just want you to know that, it's, that the solution is not to hide from the subject, but to embrace the gift of escape that our Savior offers. The culture around you may tell you that you don't deserve to be judged by God for your sins. The scriptures would tell you otherwise. And we would certainly, if we were being honest with ourselves, know that beyond the surface sins of our lives, our hearts are desperately tuned to be selfish and self-consumed. What frees us to embrace our condition and not fear the discussion of judgment is that we know that Jesus has paid in full the debt that we owed, a sin debt too great for us to pay. The morally perfect took on the punishment of the morally repugnant. He died for us when we didn't deserve to be rescued. He bailed out everyone who has ever lived if they had the faith to believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. God has demonstrated his love for you. In Romans 5, 8 it says, God demonstrated his love for you in this while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And then in James 4, 6, we're reminded again, God opposes the proud, but there is an ocean of grace for you if you're willing to say, I need forgiveness. And you'll never have to be afraid of discussion of judgment, even from the most fiery of preachers ever again, because you know it doesn't apply to you. You have nothing to fear. Your debt has been paid in full. In the summer of 2012, I came to a crossroad. Carolyn's in my dream house was, was, was within reach, although it needed some serious fix-up work. We could likely get a home loan if we could come up with the 5% down payment. Now, you've rented houses here in the area, and you've actually potentially gone on a website and looked at the cost of houses in the area. And so you can do the math, 5%. Whatever number you come up with in your head, I guarantee I didn't have it in my savings account. Even if it's the smallest house and the cheapest house in the neighborhood, 5% of that didn't have it. I can tell you. I'm a, I was a graduate student. My doctoral student loans were coming due. And on top of that, I was planting a church. I was a little financially stretched. And yet here we are on, on the doorstep, literally, of our dream home. I had one out. My dad has some money. My parents have done well for themselves, but I hate borrowing money from my parents. I'm a proud guy. Being a church planner, I had to ask strangers for money. That was no fun. You know, I had to just go out and raise support. That was bad enough, but going to your dad and saying, hey, dad, can I borrow some money? I did that one other time the first year we had children. 
And I didn't want to do it again. My pride kept me from asking for help. But there I was, and I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to make my wife happy and humble myself? Or am I going to be proud and say, darling, we don't have that down payment? Fortunately, I like Carolyn more than I like my pride, so I went to my dad. And I said, Dad, how about a down loaning me money for a down payment? And he was extraordinarily gracious. He and my mother said, we're going to give you the down payment for the house, but we also want you to know this is not a loan. This is a gift. We're going to take it out of your inheritance. It's coming one day. <laughs> Which is sort of a morbid thought, you know, because, I mean, they were in their 70s, and I'm thinking, I don't want to think about you dying, but they're like, you know what? This is not a loan. One day... We were going to give this to you anyway, so here you go. The only thing standing between me and what we needed and wanted was my pride. And I want you to know something today, friend. Your Father in heaven is ready to pay your debt of sin. You'll need to never fear judgment, the discussion of it, the thought of it, reading about it, hearing a fiery preacher bark about it. You'll never have to fear it again. The resources to pay off your sin debt were earned by his only begotten son who purchased your freedom from judgment by dying on the cross in your place. The only thing standing between you and the freedom to think about future judgment without fear, the only thing standing between you and that is your pride. And so my encouragement to you today and my prayer for you is that you would lay that down and enjoy what Jesus has for you. Let's pray to that end, shall we? Our Father, we are people who want to be self-justified. We want to take great pride in the fact that we have made ourselves into successful entrepreneurs or super fitness people or super accomplished academically we are always looking for a way to distinguish ourselves our pride will at times fuel us to achieve but when it comes to our moral debt of sin to you lord jesus we can't do anything we we're in, we are bankrupt we we stand in front of you and all we can do is thank you that you have the resources to redeem us from our sins. Father, there's a woman or a man here possibly today who has never really cried out for that mercy so that they would never have to fear judgment again. And so I pray that today you'd enable them to do that. Friend, it's a simple prayer. It's not complicated. You say, Jesus, I want to be in relationship with you. Forgive me for my sins. I believe you are the Son of God and that you live and that you died for me. And the Word of God says that if you believe that in your heart, the Spirit of God is working in you already, that, that simple confession, profession of faith in Christ is the starting point for you in relationship with Jesus. You will never fear judgment again because Christ has taken it for you. And friend, if you're here and you're a Christian, it's just been, you know, every, t every time you think about it, you, you still have a thing in your stomach where you think, am I okay? Am I safe? Today, I pray that as you take communion, you would know the joy 
of Christ having secured you in your salvation. Father, would you bless your children today that they might know the depths of your love by the willingness you have to sacrifice for them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.